welcome to Accelerate Your Wealth, a podcast by Rebecca Robertson, founder and director of Evolution Financial Planning. This series, we're focusing on female financial independence, looking towards a stronger financial future. Be sure to let us know your thoughts on the show, and please do connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram, or head over to www.rebeccarobertson.co.uk. Hey, it's Rebecca here. I hope you're having a lovely day. Today, I'm going to be talking to you about fees and charges. So, an independent financial advisor and a financial planner are, or a financial advisor are very different things. So, before I get started, I'm just going to explain the difference between those. I have talked about this in the previous podcast, but I'm just going to touch on it quickly. So, If you are speaking to a regulated financial advisor, they may call themselves a financial planner as well. Um, They are regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Therefore, the advice that you are given is regulated. So, for example, I also call myself a uh, wealth strategist. And on my Rebecca Robertson business, I am a wealth strategist. I do consultations and coaching sessions, but it's non-regulated financial advice. So you're not getting any anything bespoke regulated advice I'm not saying do this or why or do it that way etc I'm basically making suggestions and coaching clients through and giving them factual information so you can have different coaches money coaches etc doing lots of different things but they are not regulated in that particular role or charging structure similar accountants have separate um, qualifications and separate charging structures Um, So what I'm going to be talking to you about today are regulated financial advisors, so which I am also that. So my other business is Evolution Financial Planning, where I'm an independent financial advisor for that business, which I've run that business for over 10 years now. So the difference between a financial planner and a financial advisor under regulatory terms is quite different. So somebody could be call themselves a financial planner, but that doesn't mean that they're actually regulated advisor. So when you're speaking to anyone, you want to make sure that they are actually a regulated advisor, if that is what you are wishing to have, regulated financial advice from a qualified financial advisor, in a regulatory process. Now, that means that that you are taken care of and given such a duty of care under a regulated process that you can be compensated. And if you had a complaint, it would be dealt with adequately in a particular way. Whereas if you have somebody that might call themselves a financial planner and they're actually more of a money coach or um, there's more of a coaching kind of role, um, then you're not going to have the same kind of regulatory support. So let's just say that the financial advisor, independent financial advisor that we're talking to is a regulated under the Financial Conduct Authority. So that's the first thing. The second thing is how do they operate? So the word independent should give it away. If they use that word independent, it means that they have access to a large range of products and services and funds. Now, I myself have worked under two networks as an independent financial advisor, and their setup is very different. So the first one, I was under, I was independent, but I was under what was called essential investment proposition. It then means that I am deemed to be working under that panel of approved providers and funds, etc. 
Now, for some companies, that can be quite restrictive. And actually, although it's broad enough to deem yourself as independent because it's approved and it's been funneled down into a certain process, it can still be slightly restrictive for clients. Now, I work over a much, much broader panel. Um, however, I can and I do go off panel and use uh, providers off that approved panel with obviously approval. <laughs> I know it's very complicated, right? Um, but the so there's, there's a real clear question to ask here when you're speaking to an independent financial advisor, how do you deem yourself to be independent? How independent are you? How far does that go? If they don't use the word independent, then they may be working off a central investment proposition, which is deemed to be restrictive in some sense, or they might call themselves a financial advisor, financial planner, and they are working off, um, they are tied to a particular company. Now, why is that important? Now, for me, the reason why I chose to move networks and why I to choose to stay as I am, as I've described, which is independent in the truest sense that you can, I can possibly be, is because then when I'm speaking to a client and let's say they've got a pension with legal and general, I genuinely can look at the legal and general funds and I can honestly say if they should move it or not. And it does, I'm not paid based on that transactional piece. I'm, so whereas if I was restricted and I was only offering AJ financial services products, and they were with legal in general, typically speaking, the advice that's given, it has to be deemed acceptable for you to be able to say, we're going to move it from legal in general to this other financial services product. So basically, the person is paid only on you going ahead with that advice. So you have to question if that is bespoke. Is that independent? No, it's not. It, 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 to me, um, and I don't really make any apologies about this because I've had to work really hard to have the status that I have. To me, you're basically paying for someone to give you that regulated advice, but it is not bespoke um, and it is not independent and it's not impartial because it's really reliant on them being paid. So why are they going to do an awful lot of work and not find a way that it should be within the regulatory rooms advisable to, to change over to this particular other financial services offering? Um, equally, if you're then with that AJ Financial Services and their portfolios don't perform very well and they only offer that particular firm, how can they ever bespokely, independently and impartially say, let's move it to somewhere better? They're never going to do that. So you're paying potentially an ongoing service for no real due diligence in terms of if it's in the best place. So there are quite a number of considerations. Are, does the financial advisor firm, um, are they independent? How wide is their panel in terms of, you know, if they, were they restricted in any way? Um, are they in a position where they are wanting to advise um, clients from, you know, is, is, it, is it bespoke? Is it impartial, right? Are they going to make that impartial decisions on their client's behalf? So for someone like myself, I look at, the selection of pension somebody might have, selection investments they might have, and I will say, stay where you are and um, or change the fund, stay where you are, but change the fund. Or actually, that's not any good. There's no funds available there. The place is not in the best place. And we move it to somebody, somewhere completely different. And I have full spectrum of choice. The difference also being is the way that I charge, and this is a way that some financial advisors charge as well, 
is um, it's called non-contingent charging. So what we what we do is we are charging for the advice because the work is all done regardless if the advice is to move it or not because the advice might be stay where you are but change the fund as an example. Um, so I personally charge a for the report. So the process we take clients through, we then have a um, advice. The advice process is carried out. We invoice the client. We produce the report. We go. We, we talk through that advice. Um, and so we're, we're charging for the advice, basically, whereas some firms don't charge um, in that sense. They will charge on the outcome. Um, so if you go ahead with the advice, then we are paid. Now, that does sound like a bit more of an advantage, right? Because, you know, you're only paying if you actually agree with the advice and you want to go ahead. But they've already produced a report. They've already done all the work. Um, they want you to go ahead with the advice. Obviously, they wouldn't be recommending it otherwise. And therefore, you're, they're only getting paid if, if, if you go ahead. So if you're in a situation where you haven't got bespoke, you haven't got impartial advice, and you've got somebody basically try, like showing a regulatory way to show that it's worth you changing it or not, then you have to question, is that impartial? Are they honestly going to not put the client first than the sale? And, you know, you're not going to know that unless you really trust that person. Um, so that that's just an example of contingent and non-contingent charging and how that affects the advice process. So just taking it a little bit broader now. Um, so we charge fixed fees, uh, usually up to half a million. Over half a million, it's usually around 1% of the amount of money that's invested. Um, but otherwise, up to half a million, we charge a fixed fee. So we have a minimum fixed fee and it goes up in about four scales, four bandings, depending on the amount of money that was being invested. Why the amount of money often doesn't really matter if it's 50,000 or 150,000, but typically there's more responsibility, more regulation, more insurance required for the larger amount. So it's a bit like, you know, if you've got a more expensive car to insure, it's gonna cost you more. Same when you're dealing with larger amounts of money that we're giving investment advice, it means that we are liable for more issues, <laughs> if you like. It doesn't always necessarily always come down to the amount of work that's involved. We have an awful lot of red tape we have to do. We have to take the clients through a certain process and there's a lot of due diligence that has to be done to ensure that we are giving the clients the best advice. Some clients are more straightforward, some aren't. So the charges that financial advisors charge are as they are because we have a huge amount of red tape that we have to do for clients, a huge amount of regulation that we have to do, continue professional development, and we have to have a certificate of professional standing. Um, and there's, there's hours and hours of work that can go in just to one small, simple piece of business. However, having said that, some chart people charge more than others. Now, why is that? That might be because they work for a corporate and they set and stipulate the fees. They might have um, very good bonuses for their directors and fluffy carpets and, you know, all, all, all the singing and dancing looking very fancy. So in which case they might have always charged a certain way. They've not changed their charging structure. They've done it more in a Maybe they've done it the same way for the last 10, 20 years. Therefore, they've just kept it the same. It might be that there's a small collective of advisors and they've all agreed that we'd all charge the same amount. 
Um, and, and so there can be different reasons why the charging structure is what it is. So some charge an hourly rate, usually around the 100 to, two, to 250 to 300 pounds per mark per hour, like a solicitor would. The issue with that, however, is that how long is a piece of string? How long would they envisage working on your case? Is it five hours, six hours, eight hours? And quite often, if you're dealing with pension companies, they might have a different rate for an administration time for chasing up those um, pension companies, which would more likely to be, say, £50 an hour to £100 an hour. So that would then be all um, invoiced in a broken down in an hourly rate as to what work's been done. For I do fixed fees because a lot of clients don't want that unknown, how, how long's a piece of string? Could the invoice be X or Y? Um, the other way, which is a main majority of the way that financial advisors charge is a percentage. So I mentioned over half a million, I charge 1%. And sometimes that goes down to larger amounts to 0.8%. Um, because I have sort of a, a moral amount that I feel that is just too excessive even though we can charge it and we can justify charging it, there is just a certain point where I'm, I, I feel that I have a breaking point. Um, and maybe that's a limit for me, right? But I, I like to sleep at night and feel comfortable. Um, and my previous uh, network, and as I am now, I could charge for any level of investment up to 3%. So a lot of financial advisors charge 3%. And I mentioned that previously and most people are on implementation so if you go ahead with the advice so if you had a hundred grand that'd be three thousand pounds as an example whereas my fixed fee is a eighteen hundred on that same like for like example what ends up happening is that then you have people that feel that they can't afford regulated advice um which is another reason why i've tapered fixed fees um so when you're going to speak to a financial advisor, some of the questions to ask is, do you have a report fee, an implementation fee? Um, I charge the report fee, but I don't charge an implementation fee. So if the client decides to go ahead with that advice, we would administer it and there is no, um, there is no um, uh, actual implementation fee for them going ahead with that. If they decide I only want to do this or I don't want to do that, for whatever reason, their circumstances have changed, doesn't actually never happened. Um, they've already, for me, they've already paid the report fee, so it's fine, um, but we will implement whatever that is that they want to implement. If you're paying for the implementation fee, then, um, and that's all the advisors charging, then they would get paid less than because you're not going ahead with all of the advice. Some charge both. Some charge a advice fee, and an implementation fee. And that can be a fixed fee and a percentage or vice versa. So that is in a nutshell, um, how financial services charge. And the reason I haven't just gone in going hourly rate, fixed amount, percentage, and I've just given you those as an overview. The reason I've gone into a little bit more detail is to give you some context as to why it's charged and how it's charged and what in, what in, how that might implement and affect you as you are the client. Um, now, the only other charge after that is an ongoing fee. So some, some financial advisors have levels of service. Let's call it gold, silver and bronze. And they will charge a certain amount for doing certain things. Um, some um, just do the same for everybody and there's no difference. 
now they will charge accordingly really um, in that basis so if you have an all singing all dancing you know we've got maybe ultra high net worth kind of financial services firm who charge one percent of an ongoing so an annual one percent of the amount of money that they are looking after so if they're looking after one million they will charge one percent of one million per year and they will provide a certain service for that um, or you might have um, somebody that does, okay, a bronze is quite minimal. We just charge a thousand pounds a year and then we've got next level and it might be fixed and it might be for um, silver, we will do X and Y and we charge 2000 and then for the all singing and all dancing, it's 5000 and they're sort of fixed amounts. Or like myself, I charge half a percent. So it's a percentage. Um, and it's the same for everybody and everyone gets the same service, regardless of the levels of the amount. Um, the reason it's half a percent is because I feel that's a fair average across my client base. Um, and I also want to keep their costs down to ensure that we're reaching inflation levels and returns are doing what they need to be doing. So the net effect means that they're still getting healthy returns on average. Um, so that half a percent or that ongoing fee can be paid in different ways. So like myself, most clients choose to have that come from the actual investment firm. So the, let's just say the platform, legal in general, the pension, Aviva, whoever would administer that, send that to my network in the, currently the example, and then I get paid a cut of it. Um, so that's how it typically works. Some clients um, might do very occasionally want to pay that fee directly themselves if they wish to um, and that can be paid usually monthly on a monthly basis some people that have the service levels different levels of service will invoice the client directly rather than taking it from the fund um, that's often a, a choice you can you can opt to do one or the other now, what do you get for an ongoing service? So you've been given the financial advice. I myself don't stipulate you have to have ongoing. You can just have the one-off piece of advice and not use our ongoing service. Some financial advisors will say, no, you have to use our ongoing service or we're not actually going to advise you in the first place. We want to assume that you're going to be an ongoing client. And they would explain what's entailed, what that entails before, obviously, you commit to anything. Um, so under regulation, which is MIFID 2 um, regulation, we have to do a certain amount of due diligence. So let's just say we advise a client on January. The following January, we have had to have done a certain amount of due diligence to that client. So on an annual basis, we each regulator is slightly different. You have a three month window, no more. So by the March, April, you would have had to have reviewed that client's portfolio and ticked off a certain number of regulatory requirements um, boxes. And also um, updated their personal factual information, gone through their investment strategy, looked at their portfolio, looked at the performance, the costs, and provided them with an up-to-date um, annual, like an annual review, annual conversation around how it's performing, what it's doing, and any advice that might be relevant. Now, some advisors will charge e extras. So let's just say a client comes to me and says, I want to up increase my standing order by £50. I don't charge for that. Um, if a client came to me with, a, I've got an extra 100 grand, what should I do? Then I would charge for that. So each different financial advisors firm will also have from any additional ongoing work. So the half a percent or whatever the ongoing service is doesn't cover absolutely everything. It only covers within a certain remit of work that the financial advisor deems that it's, you know, it's flexible. 
generally saw top ups and tweaks and changes I don't charge any additional for it's just an ongoing client relationship now this isn't for me to tell you all about myself but I've, what I wanted to do is give you some context around um, how I work because then it means you can see how it applies to others but I've hopefully given you a broad context not just about how I work but actually how why I do what I do the way I do it um, against what is out there in the marketplace so in a nutshell when it comes to charges it's working with the right kind of advisor that you know like and trust it is a long-term relationship um, a financial advisor isn't just for the tax year it is an ongoing long-term relationship I would hope to think um, and you want to make sure that they are adequately qualified working for the right kind of business that they're not going to just move every five minutes because client ownership of the client base is vital at the end of the day, my business, I own my business. If an advisor works for me, they do that in the right structure, in the right way, that, to my standards. And it means if they were to leave, they don't own the client. The, the business uh, legally, contractually looks after that client. So, again, when you're speaking to maybe more of a sole trader, it's like, well, who owns your client base? If you left, what would happen to me? And that's a really important question. If you've got an older firm, what's their exit strategy? Are they, are they going to be selling off? So I get emails every week, several, asking me, am I going to sell? Like, will, I, will I consider selling my client base to another IFA firm? It's a huge business. And um, that's what most financial advisor firms are looking for, a, a solid client base because that is where they can sell it on and they make their money. And I know many financial advisors that have done that and they still operate in the, in the industry, but they then sell their client base onto another firm. They get a multiple, sometimes million pound payout um, and then they carry on and they carry on, etc. cetera. Um, I'm too particular about how I would operate and how, what way I would operate um, to, to do the, any of that at the moment. And also I'm far too young for any of that. This is a long, long-term relationship and long-term uh, proposition for myself. I feel like I've talked about ages, but I hope that's been helpful. I'd love some feedback if that's um, made any sense. Um, I hope it has. And I'd love some feedback if you do have any questions do contact myself or the team at rebeccarobertson.co.uk. And if you're looking for regulatory advice, obviously none of, the, none of the information I've given you today is regulated. I've just given you an overview of what the industry is like. Then you can go to our regulated website, which is evolutionfinancialplanning.co.uk. I hope you have a lovely day and I hope you uh, enjoy today's show. Take care. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Accelerate Your Wealth. For further help or to connect with Rebecca directly, please head over to the website www.rebeccarobertson.co.uk where you can find further information on our planner, book and how to further maximise your wealth. For any regulated advice, please do head over to www.evolutionfinancialplanning.co.uk.